Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Kansas City, Missouri. Welcome to the show, Bob Fraser. Great to be here with you. So, Bob, you've been in a couple of different industries, like myself, started out in the tech industry. It's not a usual career path for most real estate investors. Why don't you give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I was a computer programmer. So you, a uh, computer scientist from Berkeley and uh, loved that, enjoyed that. Ended up starting a tech business in the late 90s that became a big deal and becoming one of the fastest growing businesses in the Midwest region of the United States. Hired 300 employees, raised $44 million in venture capital and win the Ernst & Young, Ernst and Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. And then it blows up and the tech rack. So, you know, my my boast is my crater is bigger than your crater. So we lost everything. Then a few years later, did another stock market venture and just timed that literally we started September of 2008. So I have a gift of timing, I guess, you know, and I lost everything there and then came back and started in, in 20, 2012, my current business, which is note investing and really getting into, you know, did tech, did the stock market and, you know, real estate debt is just far less volatile. And so uh, much safer, much more predictable outcomes, which is what I was going for, you know, after, uh, after getting creamed with forces outside my control, I would rather have forces in, inside my control. Certainly difficult to predict the market where if you're, if the success of your business is a hundred percent reliant on market timing, then you're basically handing over control of your business to the market. And, and that's a dangerous thing to do. Yeah, and, in, and in fact, you know, if you look at the stock market, it's very fad driven. I mean, when you have PE ratios that, that, that shift, what's the logic of that? The investor world is very faddish, very popular ideas of the time. And, uh, and if somebody decides your stock is bad, you know, it's sold off. It really is a lot of nonsense. As Warren Buffett said, if markets were efficient, I would be broke. So the, the, the truth is, there's a lot of opportunity. To me, you want, to, you want to not have your price dependent on someone else's opinion. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so you've gone through a couple of economic cycles here. You went through the tech bust in around year, post-year 2000. You've gone through what many of us thought was going to be the, the, the dislocation of a lifetime in post-2008. And here we are a decade later, on the cusp of maybe going through something as big or bigger. What are your thoughts on the economic outlook? I'm actually very bullish on the economic outlook pretty much in all in all flavors, including GDP and property prices. Um, and of course, property prices are local. And so I'm not I'm not talking about maybe San Francisco or New York or a couple of these higher priced locales, but it really a national averages prices is single family homes, especially look like they have room, room to run. And on several fundamental factors, for instance, they're, they're, they're quite low price relative, you know, for example, price to rent ratio or replacement cost, adding to the fact of, you know, low interest rates, rates in the 3% range is insane. It's going to continue to pump cash into the markets. Markets have been fundamentally underbuilt for the last 15 years. So there's been very little new single family home development. And so there's a chronic shortage of supply and demand. So it's very different from the 2008 crisis. Very, very different. In 2006, 
80% of new single family originations had under a 700 FICO, 80%. Today, it's only 20%. It's very different. There's the same kind of speculation is not going on. And furthermore, when, when the Fed is printing money, you want to be in assets, okay? So, so when, there is, when there is massive easy money policy, and it's not just the Fed, it's the Bank of China, it's the ECB, it's Bank of Japan and the Fed. So when they're printing money, you want to you wanna be in assets. And you want to be in assets because basically you're shorting the, you don't want to just be in assets, you want to be in leveraged assets because you're shorting the dollar and allowing right. that price appreciation to go to the equity side of the equation. That, that that's right. I mean, you know, the theory was, I mean, I used to be a hard, hard money guy. I kind of shifted my view in 2012 when I was expecting hyperinflation and didn't happen and actually tracked, well, what did move? So I, I have, you know, I did a bunch of analysis and looked at how does money printing in the modern sense affect the markets. And the biggest change was to the stock market. The second biggest change was in, was in real estate. So when when the Fed is printing money, you know everybody's expecting inflation. And and here's here's the key understanding is to divide inflation into two components. One is consumer price inflation. The other is asset price inflation. Right now, consumer price inflation is what we think of as inflation. Consumer prices. Well, that's that doesn't go up in a money printing scenario. Okay, generally in, in modern money printing scenarios, but asset prices do go up, and we like that inflation, right? When the stock market goes up, when when the price of your house goes up, and your real estate investments, we love that kind of inflation. So as soon as you bifurcate it, all of a sudden it makes a lot of sense. When the Fed is printing money, you're releasing that money, then the value of that money is going down relative to other things, and today it's primarily going into asset prices versus consumer prices. So consumer prices are in a systemic declines. So if you look at the big three, you know, wages, food, and energy, they're in systemic declines. Wages are in systemic declines due to automation, globalization, et cetera, right? Food is in systemic declines because of productivity increases and energy as well. Number one energy producer in the world today is the United States. What's that about? Well, with the new technologies that are, it's, it's just unleashed a wave of new product. And so, so all these things are in systemic declines. The bottom line, we're not going to see consumer price inflation, in my opinion, in the near term. And so without consumer price inflation going up, there's no reason for easy money policies to stop. So I see easy money policies continuing. Next crisis hits, guess what they're going to do? And when the next crisis hits, guess what they're going to do? And so every crisis is going to be met by money easing. And again, so assets are the place to be. You just want to be in assets. And as you pointed out, leveraged assets are even better than assets. I love it. So today you're in the business of non-performing notes. We went through a cycle of that post-2008. How does the current environment compare today to the post-2008 environment? Well, you know, yeah, we had obviously the Great Recession where not much seemed to happen, the wonderful Obama years where we couldn't seem to get out of, get the economy moving. And then, of course, Trump comes in and passes his tax plan, which was really a wonderful thing. And all of a sudden, the economy started moving again. We are probably going to see another wave of defaults. The news in the Wall Street Journal this morning was the wave of evictions coming. Now, that's a little different. Rents, you know, is a little different than, than mortgages but probably correlated. Um, so yeah, we're, we're probably going to see more, more defaults. In our experience, it's interesting. We're not really seeing that in our, in our business, increasing default rates. We're seeing slight increases, but really not significant. 
don't really have a have a theory as to what what's going on there, except that maybe people are more doing everything they can to keep their home since that's where they're you know they're staying. So when we talk about notes investing, there's many different ways to do that. You can be buying performing notes, you can be buying non-performing notes, you could be doing loan modifications and workout strategies, all kinds of different approaches. What do you think is appropriate at this point in 2020? Yeah, well, we're we're doing both of those actually. We have we have a non-performing note strategy where we buy non-performing residential notes and we basically work to get them performing again. And we're very successful at that. That business is booming and we're we're doing better than we've ever done. So I can say with the, with authority that that's still working. Um, and then we have another side where we buy the reperforming notes and just hold them for income and you know mailbox money. And that's working super well as, as well. It's kind of soaring through through the through the uh, you know the COVID challenge here. Definitely a good time for both those both those strategies. Post two thousand eight, the non performing note market seemed to have so much supply. People were buying non performing notes for thirty cents on the dollar, twenty five cents on the dollar. They were doing loan modifications at yep. 50, 60 cents on the dollar and still making a very tidy profit, getting those modified loans reperforming. And helping and the borrowers. Yeah, that's right. Right. There's a lot more money. There's a lot more institutional money now chasing these non performing notes because they've noticed that there's money to be made there. Is it an auction environment? Have those deep discounts disappeared today? No, we're we're still seeing the discounts. You actually saw on on the first on the senior liens, uh, the prices kind of got bid up, you know, into the above sixty cents in the dollar range. You know, sixty cents really of home value <laughs> versus UPB, and then the prices came back down as people realized they weren't making money doing that. I think prices are pretty stable right right now in the forty to fifty five cent range. We focus on the second mortgage space which is a much thinner market. It's, as my partner says, senior first mortgages, seniors are like checkers, financial checkers. Seconds are like financial chess. And so, so we're, we're, the, we're the chess, chess masters buying this stuff and buying it far deeper discounts. And we're, we're very, very, very selective in our underwriting and our margins are far higher as well. You've obviously got less competition because people perceive the entire space as much riskier. Oh yeah, people don't know what to do with seconds, including banks. They they just don't know what to do with it. They won't foreclose on a on a second. Generally, a lot of people that buy the the defaulted distressed debt uh, buy the first and just they get the seconds for free and give them away basically. Um, so we we love those. We we do super well with the seconds. Again, it's it's much more complex workout process because you, you not only you have to understand everything with about the first you know or the you know the real you got to understand the real estate you got to understand the borrower you got to understand the state and all that you also have to understand the senior mortgage and have a pretty good visibility on that and a lot of times you just don't have visibility so that's the tricky part but it, it gives you a lot of power too because you are, we have a lot of power to really help a borrower because we have such deep discounts we can we can we control short sale we we can uh you know, have a lot of principal we can wipe out because uh, we have a lot of room, a lot of wiggle room with those, with the seconds. Now, of course, in the residential space, you're not likely to have intercreditor agreements between the first and the second. They don't know much about each other. Oh, no. 
your situation is, I'm sure, one where if they're in default on the second, they're likely in default on the first as well. Almost never. We we only buy ones where they're not in default on the on the first. So we buy we buy seconds where they're performing on the senior. So yeah, okay. and that that's 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 the secret. That's the sauce. key. That's, That's the, the secret sauce. Yeah. So the print, the seniors being paid down, what's happening in my equity position over time. And then you, if you add the, 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 the trajectory of the fair market value of the underlying home, well, all of a sudden these things just age phenomenally well. So where you buy them at X cents, you know, they, they just age super well. So everything moves in our favor over time. And as long as that senior is being paid with the second, when a performing senior, we actually know the home's occupied we know that we know the homeowner generally is trying to keep their home. So all those things make it, you know, kind of eliminate uh, some pretty major risk factors, a home that doesn't exist or hasn't been kept up or is you know, vacant for five years or something. It's just incredibly expensive and difficult to, uh, to overcome. So we, we deal with none of that. Our, our, it's, it's kind of a financial play more than a real estate play. So we're, we're primarily talking to the borrowers, probably two thirds of our, of our outcomes are loan modifications. So we come up with an affordable loan modification. About 25% of our outcomes are settlements. So we, we say, hey, you owe $100,000. Why don't you write us a check for 25,000 and wipe it out? Literally shows in your credit report paid in full. Well, that's a good phone call to get, right? And we can really help change people's lives, which we like. You know, we, we, we only foreclose about 1.5% of the time. And that's pretty much when that's, there's, they just, they're not working with us. So we're able to really take some bad paper and really help people and turn it into, or turn it into good paper and good outcomes. And does it make a difference to you whether those seconds are lines of credit or amortized loans? Does it make a no, difference? Not at all. Fantastic. Well, Bob, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Aspen Funds, F-U-N-D-S. Dot us aspenfunds.us fascinating fascinating discussion so thank you for the insights and for the listeners at home definitely reach out to bob fraser at aspenfunds.us and in the meantime have an awesome rest of your weekend go make some great things happen we'll talk to you again tomorrow